Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Mary and Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. Today we are beginning a four-week sermon series, and the title of that sermon series is Encounter Jesus Mission. Encounter Jesus Mission. And I have said this before, in fact, just this last Wednesday night because of what we were dealing with, that I always want to give credit where credit is due and not take credit for something that's not mine. And that is probably 98% of the time when I preach and teach everything that I deliver, I have researched totally, completely myself, put together. It's all my own work, that kind of thing. But every once in a while, I will use someone else's material and adapt it and whatever because I feel like God is leading me to do that because I look at it and say, man, I can't do it much any better, all right? That happened last Wednesday night for our Bible study. I used somebody else's material for just a little portion of it, and I made mention of that. Well, anyway, this sermon series um, is based on, although I have totally and completely adapted it, on a, uh, a uh, I'm trying to think of the right word to use, a, a series of lessons that were put out by an organization called Every Home for Christ. It's really interesting. We were just talking about Saturate USA, and their goal is to reach every home in the United States. Every Home for Christ is a totally different organization that has a very similar goal, only theirs is a little grander. Their goal is to reach every home in the world. And they've been involved in it for a long time, and they're making tremendous progress. And they have great resources to train and motivate and mobilize local churches to have a heart and a passion to reach out to the people around them. So we're taking their four-week training session. I'm totally different, uh, arranging it and adapting it, using some of the themes, some of the outlines, but making it my own. And that's where we're headed for the next four weeks. And so this new series is called Encounter Jesus Mission. You all know what a mission is, right? A mission is something you launch out to accomplish. Some of you got up this morning with a mission. I've got to get that cup of coffee, right? You know, there are all kinds of missions we can have in life. Some may be minor. Some may be major. Some of you have already asked you, what is your mission in life? What would your answer be? Chances are you might would say, well, I've got a number of them. You know, I want to be a good husband, wife, good father, I want to excel in my field, in my studies, in my occupation. I want to make a difference in my world in this area. Or what is your mission? Hopefully your mission, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, includes impacting your world for Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to be talking about for the next four weeks, is how we can impact our world for Jesus Christ And we're going to do that by looking at Jesus' mission. And that's the overall theme. But in that, we're going to look at Jesus' passion. And we're going to look at his promises to his people. We're going to look at his purpose. And we're going to look at his process for doing all those things. But what was Jesus' mission? You know, Jesus was very focused. 
you know, he was a man. He was God, but he was man. He was a man of God. He was a great teacher. He was a great uh, prophet. He was a great evangelist. He was a great example. He loved people. But everything he did focused in on just one mission. And that mission had two parts, although they were both crucial to one thing. You know, Luke makes it as clear as possible in a very, very short way what Jesus' mission is. In Luke chapter 19, verse 10, it says, For the Son of Man, which is a title Jesus referred to himself as, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The lost. Those people who were separated from God, which basically is every single one of us. The Bible says we are born dead in our trespasses and sins. We are born with a sinful nature, that tendency that manifests itself very quickly in a sinful lifestyle, and it separates us from God. But God doesn't want it to be that way. That's not the way he created the world and why he created the world. So Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And that's what his life was all about. That's what his mission was all about. While he was still on this earth, leading up to what we now know is going to be his crucifixion, his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus traveled all around. And he was teaching and he was preaching about the kingdom of God, basically saying, listen, God's got a life that is so much bigger and better beyond this life. It affects this life and into eternity. And God is getting ready to do something to make all that is wrong right. And the primary purpose of that was the sin problem in this world that separates us from God, that God's going to take care of that sin problem. And he he did that through Jesus' death and resurrection. But before that, leading up to that, Jesus went around and was teaching people. And it was confirmed, it was verified by the miracles that Jesus did, miracles of healing and provision and of deliverance expressions of God's love through him to people to meet their needs and to set them free from various ways that they've been bound by uh, demonic forces or just by sin in their lives. Of course, it culminated in his crucifixion and his death, which the Bible tells us was deliberate. It wasn't a failure. It wasn't um, unexpected. It was the plan all along because his death would pay the price for our sins to be forgiven. So that was his goal, that was his mission. But there was another step to it. And that is that after he was gone, because after he was resurrected, he only stuck around for about 40 days to teach his disciples, then he ascended into heaven. But that message and that freedom that was available, that eternal life needed to be taken to the rest of the world. And so he called his disciples to do that. And we call that the great co-mission. I was um, listening to a, a sermon Bible study this last week, and they said, well, that's kind of what the co-mission is. The mission of Jesus was to seek and to save, and we are a co-worker with him in that mission. Commission. A commission means that somebody has a goal, somebody has a mission, somebody has a plan, and they recruit you, and they send you out to work together with them. And that's exactly what Jesus did in Matthew 28. If you were to read it in verses 18 to 20, it's what we call the Great Commission. He says, listen, I've got, Jesus said, I've got all this authority. Now I'm going to send you out. Go and make disciples. Go tell them about everything, you know. Teach them. When they respond, baptize them. Help them to learn. Help them to grow. So that 
was Jesus' mission. And he sent the disciples out. He commissioned them. He trained them for three years. He sent them out. And they took the gospel to their world. And ever since then, over the last 2,000 years, that's been the call, the responsibility, the mission that God and Jesus calls us to join together with him to do in our world and in our time. But as we've talked about before, and I mentioned it a little bit last week, probably most of us, if not all of us, at times anyway, maybe all the time, we struggle with this. Even if, even though we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, He has forgiven us of our sins because we've recognized that we are sinners and we need a Savior and we've turned to Him and put our trust in Him and what He did on the cross. And we know that that has changed our lives. We know that because of that, we have eternal life. And it affects our life here and now, but it means that we will have an eternal life with God. And that is good news. That's what the gospel means, good news. And we know that we should take that good news to other people, but yet we hesitate. Yet we hold back. Yet we don't very aggressively. And I'm not speaking for everybody. You might be sitting here saying, well, I do it all the time. Thank you. God bless you. But a lot of us struggle with that. And why is it that we struggle with it? It's because of our fears, primarily. Three main fears. These have been studies that have been done. In fact, every Home for Christ commissioned a study to be done. And they found that there are three main fears that people battle with as far as trying or wanting or succeeding or actually setting out to share their faith. Usually you don't come across people say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't want anybody else to know. No, I know other people need to know. I know that I should be involved in that process, but I struggle. Three main fears. The first fear is that we don't like confrontation. And we are afraid that if I start talking to other people about my faith, that they're going to get upset, that I'm going to be perceived as pushy, argumentative, I don't like confrontation. We're going to talk about that today, but I just want to point out to you that if you look at the life of Jesus, as he went out and shared the gospel, and even as you look further in the New Testament, the accounts of when the disciples and the apostles went out, you find that the way they went about it, it wasn't confrontational. For the most part, there were times, especially when the religious leaders and other peoples did do some pushback, but never was it a confrontation that was initiated by the followers of Jesus. We're going to see in our story we're going to look at today in John chapter 4, which is a great example of Jesus talking to someone about this eternal life that he provides. And it's very non-confrontational. The second fear is that We look at our own life and say, how can I take this good news to the world when my life is still kind of a mess? I'm not the best of examples. We feel like we've got to get things cleaned up. We've got to be more perfect. We've got to somehow do something else before we would be qualified to take the good news effectively to other people. And we're going to see that next week, that that's not necessarily true. And then the third one is that we're afraid that we don't know enough. 
We don't know enough. I, I don't know enough about the Bible. I don't know enough about the plan of salvation. I don't know all the answers to the questions and all that kind of stuff. And so until I learn it all, I don't really want to be involved in trying to talk to people about Jesus. And we're going to see that in the following week. But today we're going to take a look at a story in John chapter 4. And we're going to see how Jesus has a passion and he's passionate about his mission. And this story is a story that may be familiar to many of you, maybe even most of you, maybe all of you have heard of this story. But Jesus is passionate about reaching a particular person. And we see that in this story. We're going to look at John chapter 4. We're going to be working our way through verses 1 to 42. And there's four main thoughts I want to share with you today. And the first one is this. Jesus passionately pursues the world. Now, I said the stories about him pursuing and having passion to reach this one particular person. But that one person is just one of a whole world that he wants to make a difference in their lives. And this story illustrates that even though he's focused at this moment on this one person, that Jesus passionately pursues the world. Jesus passionately pursues the world. Let's look at John chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. Jesus has been spending time in Judea, which is the area around Jerusalem. It's where the temple is. It's where the religious leaders are. Things are getting hot. Things are getting stirred up. A little bit of opposition. Verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples... He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, let me just stop and paint the picture here for you. If you were to look at Israel on a map, both then and now, Judea, with Jerusalem being the Jewish capital of their nation, is in the southern part of their country. Galilee, which is where Jesus spent most of his time in ministry, is in the northern part of the country. That's where most of his disciples came from. And in between is an area called Samaria. Samaria. We're going to talk about this a little bit more later, but and some of you already know this, but the Jewish people and the Samaritans did not get along. They were enemies. Now, I don't mean like there is a a, 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 a war going on where they're battling and trying to kill each other. We're just trying to, I'm just trying to communicate to you that, that basically for centuries they have hated one another. They have opposed one another. They've looked down upon one another. They've looked at each other as being less than. And there's a whole history to it. And I'm not going to try to explain it to you uh, in full other than the fact that the Jewish people felt like they were the pure-blooded, pure-focused people of God. Where the, the Samaritans actually were descendants of Jews, but because of events that had happened centuries before in history, they had intermarried with heathen peoples, and their bloodline had become mixed and their religion had become mixed. They worshiped God, but they also worshiped other gods. And, and so it had just led to this animosity. Okay. And so you've got Jesus down in Judea, near Jerusalem. He wants to go back to Galilee, but he has to go through Samaria. So let's pick it back up in verse four. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, 
near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? I want to focus on a little phrase we see in verse 4. It says that when Jesus was traveling from Judea to Galilee, he had to go through Samaria. Now that's true and not true. The reason I say it's true and not true is that there were three main ways to get from Judea to Galilee, and the route that he is on is the quickest and the most direct. There are two other routes. One in particular would require someone, as they're leaving Jerusalem and Judea, to cross over the Jordan River, travel up on the other side of the Jordan River till they get parallel to Galilee, and then cross back over again to Galilee. And perhaps you've heard this taught or preached before, that there were many Jews that would take that longer route. Instead of a day and a half, it would take three days. Why would they do that? Because they didn't want to go through that neighborhood. That's just kind of a colloquial way to put it. They didn't want to go through Samaria. They didn't want to go through the land of their enemies. They didn't want to go through the land of these people that were not as pure as they were, that did not serve God like they did, and they looked down upon them. It's like they didn't want to have anything to do with them. You know, it could be that there'd be confrontation, conflict. But they didn't want to do it, so they would travel the other way. So when this says that Jesus had to go through Samaria, it could just mean... That that was the shortest route, that's the way he wanted to go, so that's the way he had to go. However, that phrase, something had to happen, or Jesus had to do something, is used several times in the Gospel of John. And the way it is worded in the Greek, is it, that it is worded in such a way as saying that this was something that was destined. This is something that was pre-planned. This is something that was part of God's plan for Jesus, and to fulfill it, he had to do that. That's the way it's used all throughout the Gospel of John. So it seems to indicate that that nuance is here also. Yes, Jesus had to go through Samaria if he wanted to go the quickest, most direct route. But this was part of God's plan. This was part of his plan. He didn't just take this path and stop at this well outside this city because it was the quickest way to get to where he wanted to go. But because he had an appointment there. Because it was part of God's plan. Because it was part of his plan. Because it was part of his passion for his mission. There was someone he needed to meet and it was this Samaritan woman. He had to go through to take advantage of this opportunity. To take advantage of this opportunity to reach this woman. A woman whom we're going to find was not significant in the eyes of the world in general, or even of her own people. A woman who, even in the midst of a people that the Jewish people looked down on, was looked down upon by her own people because of her past, because of her history, because of her lifestyle. Someone who, if there was anybody in town, the people say, who could we best do without in our town? She might would be the number one candidate. She's an embarrassment to us. And this is the one that Jesus had a passion to reach out to. And as we're going to see as we get toward the end of the story, 
that it didn't stop there, that through this woman, as looked down upon as she was, as rejected as she was, Jesus was going to reach out to her entire city. And he's going to do it effectively. Jesus pursues the world. You know, not just this story and other stories in the gospel show us that. The fact that he left heaven, God himself, Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2, how he set aside many of his privileges and everything as God to become man. The fact that he came to earth, specifically knowing the end result was that he would die so his death could pay the price for sins, shows that he's passionate about seeking the lost, about pursuing the world. The scripture I read earlier where it says in Luke that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. That's the very reason he came. He is passionate to pursue the world. We see it in every story of his life and ministry as he travels around. He is constantly reaching out to people to draw them to himself and to God's plan for them to meet their needs, to give them the truth, to point them to the eternal life that they can have in Him. He's reaching out to the broken. He's reaching out to the cast-offs of society, the poor, the, the unwanted, the rejected, the worst of sinners. Now, He loves everybody, but He's reaching out to everybody. Can I tell you that Jesus wants us to intentionally pursue the world. Now, each of us as individuals, we can't reach the world by ourselves. But God sends us, Jesus sends us out into our world. And this is not meant to be a condemnation. It's not meant to be a guilt-inducing thing, but just something that maybe God can use to stir our hearts to say that God wants to reach the world and He's the one that has to do it. Jesus paid the price. And God's the one that has to work in their hearts. And they're the ones that have to be respond. But he wants to use us to be his messengers. And we're going to see in this story that Jesus is a great example of that. Jesus wants us to intentionally pursue those in our life. Wherever we come across them. In our homes. In our extended family. In our schools. In our workplaces on social media, wherever it is that you have a presence, you have an influence, you have contact with other people. Can I just tell you again, not to make you feel condemned or guilty, but to give you some hope. God wants to use you and he will use you. If we can get past this fear, can I tell you all these fears that we battle with, they are tools of the enemy to keep us from making a difference in our world. God wants to. God will. God can. And there's great blessing that comes from that. As I said, as we're going to look at this story, you know, this woman's got a lot of baggage. She's got a lot of garbage in her life. But when Jesus deals with her, he's not confrontational. He's not argumentative. He's not pushy. He just has a conversation. There's a definition that I want us to kind of work with for these next four weeks of what evangelism is. Now, evangelism, as I said, evangelism is sharing the good news. In fact, the word evangel is the word good news translated out of the Greek. And we often think of evangelism involving somebody getting up and preaching a message and people responding to that good news. And that certainly is evangelism. 
Uh, we think of evangelism sometimes perhaps somebody speaking to a group in a, in a small, uh, smaller setting or whatever and sharing the gospel, and that is evangelism. But that's the type of evangelism that most believers will never be a part of because God hasn't called them to be a public speaker. And God uses that, and he used it in the New Testament to reach people. But can I tell you, the primary way that God used people to reach others for Jesus, and I believe it's the primary way he wants to use people to reach others for Jesus today, is through one-on-one contact, relationship, communication, and sharing. But too often, we're willing to kind of abandon our responsibility, abandon our calling to say, well, you know what? Somebody else, they'll hear the message, they'll hear a message from a preacher. They'll hear a message in a church service. They'll hear a message in some kind of special uh, crusade or something. And, and we hope that's true. We pray for that to be true. We need to invite people to events like that so that can be true. But I've always proposed, because we see it in Scripture, that the primary way God reaches people is one-on-one through relationship. So this definition is evangelism intentionally engaging others in spiritual conversations that could lead to sharing the gospel, the truth about Jesus Christ. As we go through life, we just say, you know what, I've got things I've got to do today. I've got to go to school. I've got to go to work. I've got responsibilities. All these things are good, proper, within God's plan for us. I've got to pursue a career. You know, I'm retired. I've got things I've got to do. But you know what? I want to be used by God today. God, who can I touch for you today? Another misconception that we sometimes feel is that sharing the gospel with someone means that we make that contact, we give them the whole story, the whole thing, call them to a decision, and it's all got to happen in five minutes. Or at least one conversation. But how do you know that's not usually the way it works? It does work that way sometimes, but usually it's because other people have already had an influence on them. They've already heard the message before, maybe even several other times, and you just happen to get there at the very, very end, and they're ready to go. And we need to watch for those opportunities. But most of the time, it's a process. That's what we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks. It's a process. You may have one conversation with somebody this week that lasts five minutes, and it just sows a little seed. And then you may have another conversation or contact with them another week and a half down the road or, or because of their interest, you may talk about it almost every single day, but it's going to take some time. They're going to learn a little bit more and more all along the way until they finally come to that place where they're saying, hey, you know what, I'm willing to, to consider this for my life. And that should take some pressure off of us because it just basically means that whenever I interact with other people, wherever it might be, people I know real well, people I don't, God just leads me to them. If I have the opportunity to share what Jesus has done in my life and what he can do in their life, I'm going to do that and we're going to see where it leads. And if it doesn't come to some prayer of dedication and commitment at that moment, it'd be great if it did. That's okay because the next time I see him, if there's an opportunity, we're going to talk about it again and we'll see what happens over time. In this particular case, Jesus obviously is speaking with this lady at one particular moment in time. But they're going through a process. So we see in this story, Jesus passionately is pursuing the world, and it's manifested in his focus on this one woman. The second thing I want to emphasize to you today is this. Jesus offers new life to all who will simply ask. Jesus offers new life to all who will simply ask. Let's go back to our story here. We'll pick it back up, overlap in verse 9. Where it says, a Samaritan woman says to him after Jesus says, give me a drink. 
How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus is having this communication with this woman, and this woman is totally surprised. She's coming to this well. It's in the middle of the day, between 12 and 1 o'clock, the hottest part of the day. And we'll talk a little bit later why she's coming during that day. That's that time of the day. That's not when most people come to the well. In fact, usually the well is deserted at that time, and that's specifically why she's coming at that time. She doesn't want to meet with anybody. Most of the time, the women would come out earlier in the morning or later in the evening or both if they needed more water. The well is about a half to three quarters of a mile away from town. She doesn't want to meet anybody. She comes out to the well. She notices that Jesus is sitting there. She doesn't expect him to talk to her. She doesn't know who he is. He's a stranger, but even if it's a man from town, he's not likely to talk to her because of her past, but also because she's a woman. In that culture, in that day, men did not talk to women in public. In fact, they usually would refrain from talking even to their wives in public. It just wasn't done. But in this case, it's especially noticeable that Jesus is a Jew. She's a Samaritan. She knows their history. She knows the enmity there is between their two peoples. She certainly wouldn't expect Jesus to talk to her, being a woman, number one, but also especially because he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. So when he asks her for a drink of water... Totally shocks her, totally surprises her. Why are you asking me this, especially with you being a Jew and I'm a Samaritan and we don't have dealings with one another? And, and can I just pause to tell you, that, you know what? Jesus didn't let anything get in the way of him reaching other people. And that included the cultural mores of the day. Something we can think about and pray about too is what barriers might there be in our lives that would keep us from reaching out to certain types of people? May God make it such that we're willing to reach out to anybody God leads us to. Not, well, I'm only going to reach out to certain types of people, people that are like me, people that I can relate to, you know, but definitely not that type of people, whatever that type of people might be for us. But here we see Jesus' passion. Here we see Jesus' passion. This is the way I define Jesus' passion, because we're talking about Jesus' passion right now. I haven't really defined it. Jesus' passion is that people would truly know him and experience the living water, which is eternal life, that he offers. We see this in verse 10. Verse 10, to me, is the key verse of this whole story and how it even applies to our lives. When he asks for water and she says, well, why are you asking me? (laughs) I'm a woman, I'm a Samaritan. And he said, if you knew the gift that God had for you. And if you really knew who you were talking about, or who you were talking to, not about, who you were talking to, 
And who it is that's saying, give, you a, give me a drink. He says, you would not just want to give me a drink, but you'd say, give me a drink. Because I have living water. A number of phrases that are there, but it's really about two things. If she really knew who Jesus was and really understood what he had to offer. If she really knew that Jesus was God come in the flesh, the Jewish Messiah, she's going to come to that conclusion in just a little bit. And knew what he had to offer, not just water you can draw from the well, but living water, which is, which is a, 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 a metaphor for eternal life. Then you say, oh, please give it to me. Would you please give it to me? And can I tell you that that's such a, such a clear picture of our world and the people without Jesus. If they could truly understand who Jesus really is and what he has to offer, they'd be begging, please, would you give it to me? And you see, that's what this whole conversation is about. It's really interesting as we read through this conversation. We've read part of it. We're going to read the rest of it in just a little bit. You know, Jesus says, give me a drink. And he uses that as a way to introduce this living water. And in her mind, living water, the way they use that phrase in their culture, meant water that came from a flowing source. It wasn't just water that was in a cistern, a water that had been collected from the rain in a barrel, or water that was sitting in a pot or a jug or a container of some sort. But it was water that was from a flowing stream, or water that would come from a spring coming up out of the ground. And Jacob's well, where they're at, It's a well that had been around for hundreds of years and it still is over in Israel today. It's over 100 feet deep. Think about this. This lady had to walk from town over half a mile. All the ladies had to do it. It was the lady's job to do this. And they had to let down the bucket, the the whatever, into that well over 100 feet and draw up that water and then carry it back to town at least once, maybe twice a day. Enough water to meet the needs of their household. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. And so Jesus is using that to get her attention, to to draw her to the truth he's trying to give her. He says, give me a drink. She says, I can't believe you're talking to me. He says, if you knew. And can I tell you that he's going to be walking her through this conversation. And he's, he's trying to get her to understand, number one, who he is. And number two, that this living water he's talking about is not just water that comes from a spring. It's not just water that comes from a river. It's not just fresh water, but it's eternal life. And no matter what he says, she still doesn't quite get it until the end. She still thinks he's talking about literal water. And she's still not quite who he, sure who he is, but over time she's starting to get an understanding. She's talking about here, you say that you'd give me living water. And she's probably thinking about the living water in the bottom of the well. Because even though it's in the well, it comes from a spring. She says, you asked me for a drink. You don't have anything to draw water from. So how are you going to give it to me? Are you greater than our father Jacob? I mean, he had to dig this well so we could have water. You got some other source? And it's kind of uh, like, (laughs) you're not greater than our father Jacob. Israel, the one who founded our nation, who's the greatest ancestor of our people. And he says, everyone who drinks in this water will be thirsty again, but I have water that if you drink, you will never be thirsty again. Why is this water so important? It goes all the way back to Genesis. 
The story in Genesis chapter 2, when God had created the earth and he created Adam and Eve in the garden and they're serving him in the garden. They're, 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 everything's wonderful. Everything's perfect. They have a great, perfect relationship with each other, with God. And then sin enters the picture. Many of you, most of you, maybe all of you are familiar with that story. We're not going to dig into the details. But because they chose sin... Because they chose to disobey God, basically say, God, we're going to do it our way and not your way. And that really is the root of sin. The pride that says, I'm going to be my own God, my own master, do things my own way instead of God's way. And it puts the barrier between people and God. But God's response in Genesis 2, 16 to 17, he's talking to them. He says, actually, he's saying this before it happens. He says, you can eat from every tree in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And again, they chose their own path, captain of their own fate. They decided to eat it, and death entered the world. Not just physical death, which wasn't immediate, although it was definite. Because they ate it, one day they would physically die. But immediately there was spiritual death and separation from God. And that's why, as I said at the beginning of my message today, we are all born dead spiritually. We are all born separated from God because we're sinners. We're sinners by nature. And we can't just point back and blame Adam and Eve because we're all sinners. We all act out on our sin and our sin separates us from God. And as I said, that's why Jesus came. Jesus lived the perfect life that we could not live, and he died a death he didn't deserve, so that in God's plan, the way they had arranged for it, and they even set this plan up long before God created the heavens and the earth, that Jesus' death would pay the price for our sins and offer this living water, offer this eternal life. Obviously, the cross has not happened yet, so this is looking forward. He says, you know, events are set into motion. Things are going to happen. This eternal life is available. This living water is available. If only you would ask for it. If you ask for it, I'll give it to you. And so that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to give life. In fact, one of the places he talked about was John 10.10. He says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Another way of saying living water, eternal life. So as we continue through this conversation, we see that for most of it, she doesn't, she doesn't really fully understand, but she's interested. And because she's interested, Jesus continues the conversation. You know, sometimes God will use us to talk to other people, and no matter how hard we try to explain spiritual truths or whatever, get them to understand, they may not get it. Don't give up. Don't despair. God's at work. You keep praying for them over time. God's Spirit will work in their life and give them an understanding that they can respond to. May our passion be just like Jesus's. That people would truly come to know Jesus and experience that living water that he offers, that eternal life that he offers. The third truth I want to put out there for you today is this new life that Jesus offers meets our deepest needs. This new life that Jesus offers meets our our deepest needs. Let's go on with the conversation. As we pick it back up, again, we'll overlap by rereading um, verse 14. Whoever drinks of this water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't have to be thirsty or come here to draw water. I tell you what, I, I can relate. She's basically saying, hey, you offering indoor plumbing? I'll take it. You know? I won't have to trudge this half, three quarters of the mile outside of town carrying this heavy bucket even when it's empty and let it down into the well, draw it back up and carry it full back to town once or twice a day. I'll take it. Again, she doesn't understand the spiritual implications of what Jesus is saying, but she'll get there. Verse 16, it seems like Jesus is changing subject. He said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Let's go ahead and read through the rest, and we'll talk about what that means. Go and call your husband and come here. Verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. And she's hoping that's going to be the end of that topic, but it's not. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband, but what you've said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ, when he comes, he'll tell us all things. Jesus said to him, I who speak to you am he. So I said that the new life Jesus offers meets our deepest needs. What what are this woman's deepest needs? Well, she doesn't actually come out and say it. We can only pick it up from the story. But there's a number of things that I've kind of picked out of here that might be her deepest needs. One is shame. You see, I think that's why Jesus kind of seems like he's changing the topic. They're going along one particular direction. She says, oh, give me this water. He says, go call your husband. Now, different Bible scholars have said different things about why he said that. You know, some have said, well, you know, in their culture, the man of the home is the one who's most in charge. So if she's really showing some interest, she needs to have her husband here so he can explain it to both of them. You know, but I'll be honest with you, Jesus said that specifically to get her response, to probe into her life, to probe into her past. But some have preached this and taught this, that he was doing it deliberately to kind of stir up the sin that's in her life. So she would recognize that she's this terrible sinner that needs a savior, And can I tell you that there is sin in her life. The life that she is living is immoral. And that life needs to be dealt with. But I don't think that that's what Jesus is doing. I think that what Jesus is doing is trying to reveal that sin, but not so she feels condemned and looked down upon even by him, but to let her know that he knows about what she's gone through, but yet he still cares. He knows what she's gone through, but yet he still offers her eternal life. He still offers her this living water. I think that Jesus is dealing with her deepest need with gentleness and compassion. He says, go, get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. 
And she's hoping, okay, now we can go ahead and change the subject. And he says, you're right. And I believe he's saying this with gentleness, with compassion, with, with empathy. You're right, you, you don't. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with right now isn't even your husband. You see, I, she's dealing with shame. You know, according to the Jewish way of life and even according to her own people's way of life. I said before, she's looked down upon. She's rejected. Why? Because of the life she's lived. You see, it may not even be totally her fault that she's had five husbands. She made the choice to live with the man she is now in an immoral relationship. But in her mind, she may not have had a choice because it may have been either that or live on the street. Sell herself as a prostitute. Starve to death. You see, women just didn't have much value, as much value in culture then, and Jesus never condoned that. In fact, Jesus gave women more value than anybody else in his day and age. Many times people say Christianity has tried to keep women in their place and push them down. Christianity, through the history of the world, has done more to liberate women and to give them value and to lift them up to the equality that they deserve than anything else. Jesus is talking to her. Well, she says she had five husbands. Why did she have five husbands? Well, because she had one husband and then she didn't have that husband anymore. Why did she not have that husband anymore? One of two reasons. Either that husband died or he divorced her. She didn't divorce him. You see, women couldn't divorce their husbands in that culture. Now, she's had five husbands. It may be a mixture. Maybe some died, maybe some divorced her. If all five husbands died, that's just, that's just, that's just too much of a coincidence. I have a feeling... Just my opinion. I always try to be very quick about telling you what's my opinion and what's actually in God's word. I have a feeling that if not all, that most of these husbands divorced her. And so what that means is that this woman has been rejected five times by men who committed their lives to her. And finally, she just gave up or she's with this guy and he's not even willing to commit his life to her. He's like, I'll live with you, but I'm not going to marry you. And in their culture, even though it may have been the men that made those decisions, the women bears the shame. See, that's why she probably wanted to go to the well in the middle of the day. She didn't want to go earlier when the other women were there. She didn't want to go later while the other women were there because all those women looked down upon her. She's the immoral woman. She's the one that's been there. And you know, even even if all five of her husbands died, then people would look at her as she's cursed. God's curse is resting upon her. Shame. Shame. Jesus is acknowledging his understanding of her hurt, her pain, and her rejection. The thirst she probably has inside for a meaningful relationship. And she's not founded her entire life with man or with God. You see, Jesus is trying to stir her thirst. Not for literal water, but for living water. So you have shame. There's a possibility here of a need of feelings of insignificance. As we explore the reasons why perhaps five men divorced her, in their culture, one of the primary reasons why a man could and would get a divorce real quick and easy is as if his his wife would not bear him a son. There's every possibility. Again, this is not spelled out in the Scripture, but there's every possibility that this woman could not bear children. So she had her first marriage. It was a happy occasion, but after a period of time, she couldn't have any kids, so her husband divorced her. 
Because that was the primary roles and responsibilities of women was to bear children and especially a son to carry on the name and the, the heritage and the, 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 the lineage. And that was, unfortunately, women's primary role in their culture. But can I tell you that women also rejoiced in that. Not only has she not been able to perhaps carry forth what her primary role was, but also her greatest desire to bear children and to pour into their life. And it didn't happen with the first husband. Somebody else gave her a chance. It didn't happen, so they divorced her five times, perhaps. Perhaps she was divorced. And so this feeling of insignificance, I was brought into this world. I came into this world to serve a purpose, and I cannot even serve the most basic purpose for my gender, for my culture. Feelings of insignificance and worthlessness, perhaps, going through her mind. But then we also see spiritual confusing, confusion and longing. And we're not going to dig deeply into the discussion her and Jesus are having about spiritual things. There's some great meat there. But if I was to explain all the stuff in this story, we wouldn't get out of here until 1.30. And I know you all don't want to stay that long. I don't want to stay that long. But going through all these things, it's like, you know, she says, well, you know what? You Jews said we should worship in Jerusalem. And, and we Samaritans, we worship here on, on, on this mountain. And the mountain was right there. You could see it, you know, and that's part of their history. Which one is right? And basically Jesus says, well, really, I'll be honest with you. Jesus always told the truth. The Jews are right. You know, God gave the revelation that it was supposed to be in Jerusalem. But at one time, God's people did worship on that mountain. So it wasn't like the Samaritans had this idea out of their own head. You know, at one time, God's people did worship there. Then God moved it to Jerusalem. But the Samaritans said, well, we'll worship here because we're not welcome in Jerusalem. And she's asking all these questions, you know, and he's giving some answers. And and he says, you know, besides wherever it's right to worship now, it's in a little while, it's not going to matter because it's going to be a spiritual thing. It's not going to be a place. It's not going to be about a place. And it is no longer about a place. It's not about this place. Worshiping God is a spiritual thing. Between us and God directly and us doing it together. So anyway, they're having all these discussions back and forth and it shows that she's kind of spiritually confused, but she's interested and she longs to understand. And it gets to the end where she says, you know, this has been a nice, I'm paraphrasing, this has been a nice discussion but you know what? These kind of things aren't going to be settled till the Messiah comes. We know that the Bible says that the Messiah is going to come, and the Jewish people believed in the Messiah. The, 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 the Samaritans believed in a different person that was supposed to come and make everything right. Similar idea, and she's kind of commiserating with him and comparing. She says, you know what? We can discuss this stuff all day long, but until the Messiah comes, it's not going to be settled. We're not going to understand everything. And that's when Jesus reveals who he is. He says, I'm, I'm the one. The person you're talking to is the Messiah. He's the one you and everybody else has been looking for. I want you to notice something here. Jesus reaches out to her before her life is perfect. In fact, her life is quite a mess. And that's the story of Jesus coming. You know, Paul puts it this way in Romans 5, verses 6 and 8. For while we were still weak, talking about in our sins and couldn't do anything about it. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is a very, very important point. No one is disqualified from this eternal life. And no one has to clean up their life to get this eternal life. 
Now, once we have this eternal life, once we come to Christ, our lives will begin to get cleaned up because God's Spirit dwells within us. He begins to work on us. Yes, this woman is living an immoral life, and something will be, need to be done about that eventually. But Jesus is not waiting till her life is cleaned up before he offers her eternal life. And the same thing should be true for our approach to other people. Everyone is qualified, and we need to reach out to everyone. It doesn't matter what their life is like. It doesn't matter where they've been. It doesn't matter what they've done. It doesn't matter what they're involved in at the moment. Jesus loves them, and we should too. Jesus is passionate that they know him and have this living water, this eternal life, and we should feel that same way. And this new life can meet our deepest needs. And I want to pause right here before I go to the last one and just say that if you are here today or if you're watching online, you might say, I can kind of relate to this woman. There's a lot of stuff going on in my life. It's not the way I want it to be. It's not even the way I chose for it to be. And I've got a lot of needs and I've got a longings. I've got a lot of desires. I've got a lot of stuff I wrestle with. There's a lot of things I'm ashamed of. There's unfulfilled stuff in my life. I've got a lot of questions. And even though we're talking about our, as believers responsibility and hopefully passion to reach people around us. God may be using this to work in your life to say Jesus offers that eternal life to you. And I would just want to encourage you to says that he will give that eternal life to anyone who asks and that you would ask him for that eternal life today. The fourth and last thing I want to draw out of this story. Again, there's so many details in this story that we could deal with, but we're not going to be able to. The new life Jesus offers overflows to others. The new life Jesus offers overflows to others. As we go on in the story, starting in verse 27, and for sake of time, we're going to skip over a couple of things. Right after Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Okay? Jesus says, I'm the Messiah. Here we are at the moment. He's ready to call a woman for a response. And there's an interruption. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They'd gone into town to get some food. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, you know, because, again, males didn't talk to females, all that kind of stuff. That he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. And then it gets into a passage in verses 31 to, uh, let me see where it is, down to verse 38. We're going to skip. You can read that on your own. Where the disciples say, you know, they're like, I don't know what this is all about. Jesus was talking to this woman, and we show up, and, and she just leaves her water jug there and goes back to town. And, and it's like, oh, well, well, Jesus, you sent us to get some food. Here's some food. Why don't you eat this? And Jesus says, that's okay. I got food to know, that you don't know about. And basically, he says that, you know, they said, where did you get food from? He says, no, doing God's will, fulfilling my purpose, pursuing my mission, reaching out to people is more satisfying to me than eating. And basically, what he's saying is it's not over yet. I'll eat later. And he uses that as an opportunity to say, you know, we've got sayings in our culture, you know, because we grow crops and stuff that, you know, you plant the seeds, then you got to wait a certain number of months, and then you harvest it. He says, but God's at work. He says, we don't need to wait to harvest. The harvest is ripe. And he's talking about this woman. He's talking about this town. 
He's giving them instruction. He's letting them know that down the road, you know, they're going to be taking the message and there'll be a time to sow. And it's going to take a little bit of time before those seeds begin to germinate. It'll take some watering and some nurturing. And that's the process we're going to talk about in a couple of weeks. He says, but in this instance, that process has been compressed to boom. It's now. The seeds have been sown and it's time to harvest. Because the woman went back to her town and what used to be her shame now becomes her message. Because she says, I've met a man. He knew everything about me. I think she's convinced he's the Messiah. But she can't just say that to these people because they're not going to listen to her. You know, she says, he's the Messiah. She goes, oh yeah, why, why should we listen to you? Instead, she's smart. She says, could he possibly be the Messiah? I mean, that's just a summary of what she said. She probably said, he knew all about what I'd been through. He knew about my history. He knew about all, and, and it stirs the people. And so they're saying, well, lead us to him. And so they're starting to come out of town. Jesus has this conversation with his disciples, and then we pick it back up in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we've heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. You know, a couple chapters from this, in John chapter 7, Jesus is going to be back in Judea. He's going to be in the temple. He's preaching. He's teaching. And in the midst of this great celebration, he makes a proclamation. John chapter 7, verses 37 to 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will will flow rivers of living water. In other words, he says, you have living water available to you. But he says, but not only when you get it, it's going to flow out of you. You see, that's what's supposed to happen. When we have asked for and received this living water, this eternal life, the way it's supposed to happen is that begins to flow out of us. That leads to our responsibility. That leads to God give us that same passion so that we'll overcome our fears and we'll reach out to other people and tell them about Jesus. You know, in, in Israel, there's the Dead Sea. There's something similar in the United States, the Great Salt Lake. Both of those bodies of water are dead. And everything around it is dead. There's rivers that flow into both of those. And along the banks of the rivers, there's lots of life. But when it gets to the Dead Sea or the Great Salt Lake out in Nevada, it's all dead. Why? Because water's going in, but not going, none's going out. Can I tell you, sometimes we can experience a spiritual deadness if all we do is we take in and we don't ever give out. It's one of the reasons why, as we studied last week in Psalm 107, verse 2, the psalmist says, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. If you missed last week, you can go back and listen to that or watch it. But the woman responded... We don't know all that was going on in her mind and her heart. She went back and shared with her community. Let me ask you a quick question. We're going to deal with this in the weeks to come. How much spiritual maturity did she have before she began to share her story? Zero. There's hope for us. There's hope for us. We'll talk about that next week. The people of the community were stirred because of her testimony. 
but then they came to know Jesus for themselves. May that be true in our lives. They become stirred because of our story, because of what God allows us to share with them. And then may they come to know Jesus themselves. I want to conclude with one other passage here. Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, people that don't know Jesus, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now, I know that you may still have some questions, and we're going to work through three more weeks. But I just want to challenge you today. Could you just, before God, say, God, it's not easy. It's something I may fear. It may be something that I hesitate, I struggle with. But God, I want to be used by you to take Jesus to the world. How many of you say, that's my heart? That's my heart. Lord, please, would you use me to take Jesus to the world? Help me to overcome. I would challenge you. I would encourage you to be here the next couple of weeks as we work through some of these things. I believe it'll help you gain confidence. It'll, it'll help you know better how to do that. Let's all stand together. We're going to end a little bit different today. This took me a little bit longer than I thought and planned to do, which is fine. I believe I delivered what God wanted me to deliver. Can I ask you to just bow your heads and close your eyes, please? And before we wrap this up today, I just want to ask, are you here today? Or are you watching online today? And you'd say, you know what? As you mentioned earlier, Pastor Tim, I can relate to that woman at the well. I need that living water. I need that eternal life. My sin has bound me up and it's led me to all kinds of stuff. Maybe not exactly, probably not exactly like the woman at the well, but... I have issues in my life and I've got stuff I don't like and I'm in places I don't want to be and I can't seem to get free and I need a savior. I need forgiveness of my sins and I want to turn to Jesus today. If that's you, would you just slip your hand up because I want to pray with you and I want to pray for you. Anybody say, I need Jesus in my life. Amen. How many of you would say, you know what, I know Jesus. But I need Jesus' help. I need that. I need that life, that, 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 that living water to be more abundant in my life. I, I need that to flow in and through me more than ever before. Many, many hands that are raised. Would you all just repeat after me? God, I come to you today, and I am a sinner. And Lord, I ask you to forgive me of my sin. Not because I'm worthy, not because I deserve it, not because I can earn it, but because your word says, that's why Jesus died. I repent of my sin and I surrender my life to you. Thank you, Lord, for the living water, the eternal life that you make available. Father, may it flow in me and through me and help me to live for you. And for those of us that know Jesus, we pray, God, please, please, Father, may your life not only be resident in us, but may it flow through us, making our entire life alive in a demonstration and a testimony of your goodness. Oh, Lord, stir our hearts. Help us, Father, to overcome our fears. God, put within us 
a fresh passion to really be used by you to expect it, to believe it, and to see it happen. Father, we thank you and we praise you for it, Lord. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org.